I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with Gavin Creel. Gavin received a Tony Award for his performance as Cornelius Hackle in Hello, Dolly! starring Bette Midler and David Hyde Pierce. Gavin made his Broadway debut, originating the role of Jimmy Smith in Thoroughly Modern Millie, for which he received his first Tony Award nomination. He's since created such memorable performances on Broadway as Claude in Hair, which earned him a second Tony Award nomination, Jean-Michel in La Caja Fall, and Stephen Codley in the Roundabout Theatre Company's production of She Loves Me, which was filmed live and is available on Broadway HD. No stranger to London audiences, Gavin most notably originated the role of Elder Price in the West End production of The Book of Mormon, for which he received the Award for Best Actor in a Musical. He also starred as Bert in Disney's Mary Poppins and reprised his performance as Claude in Hair. Other stage credits include starring opposite Sarah Bareilles in the Broadway and West End production of Waitress, The Book of Mormon on Broadway and originating the first national tour, as well as the world premieres of Stephen Sondheim's Bounce at the Goodman Theatre and the Kennedy Center and Prometheus Bound at ART. On television, Gavin co-starred alongside Julie Andrews in ABC's Eloise at the Plaza and Eloise at Christmas Time. He's released three original albums, Good Time Nation, Quiet, and Get Out, and his single Noise raised money and awareness for marriage equality. Gavin was a co-founder of Broadway Impact, the first and only grassroots organization to mobilize the nationwide theater community in support of marriage equality. Listeners, this is a very special 40th episode, and I am so looking forward to sharing it with you. I've always been a huge fan of Gavin since I played Nick in a Summerstock production of Fame and couldn't stop listening to a recording of I Want to Make Magic. I was like, who is this? It was Gavin, and I've been a fan ever since. But after our recent chat, I'm an even bigger fan of him as a person and grateful to have him on the podcast and, more importantly, in our industry. We chat about too much to summarize right here, but being Pride Month, we do get to chat about Gavin's split-second decision to come out publicly in an interview he was doing for the Broadway production of Hair. We talk about LGBTQIA representation in casting, how far we've come, but the work that still needs to be done from writers, producers, casting directors, and everyone in our industry. Gavin and I also talk about unacceptable workplace behavior. Gavin worked for producer Scott Rudin for five years and opens up about his experience, the abhorrent behavior outlined in the Hollywood Reporter article, and how to address this behavior moving forward. I can only speak for me, but hearing someone I respect as much as Gavin addressing this issue gives me more permission and agency moving forward in my own life and my career. I believe that by having these conversations with or without a microphone is how we start to affect change both in the industry and in the world. As always, if you want to reach out with any comments, questions, or anything at all, please shoot an email to info at thebreakdownpodcast.com. On a brighter note, this is our 40th episode, and I would not still be doing it without all of you. So if you are enjoying what you're hearing or know someone who might need to hear this or any of our conversations, please tell a friend and share the episode. It really makes a huge help. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with the kind, compassionate, intelligent, and very special Gavin Creel. Well, Gavin, I am so happy to be seeing you again and chatting again, and I so appreciate you know, you, we've spoken about this before, but you, you know, being on the podcast and you're a wonderful person in my mind to talk to, you know, you're not just another actor. I think that you are an actor with a 
wonderful career that you've maintained over the course of many, many, not, not too many years, but uh, many, I have many my own years career. <laughs> and, and done some really wonderful things and great work and, you know, keep surprising us with the projects you pick and the roles you choose. And certainly the work that you do in these, whenever I get to see you, I'm just never disappointed. So I'm, Thank I'm happy you. to hear a little bit about that today on the podcast. It's, I'm so grateful to be here again. At full disclosure that we did talk before and the short of it for anyone who's listening is Robbie was kind enough to send me an edit, which I think originally I said, oh, don't just go ahead and put it up because I think in an effort to me just be like, I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to speak from my heart. Well, you sent me an edit and I listened to about three minutes of it. No, I did. I listened to like 10 minutes of it. Frankly, between you, me and anyone listening, I was nauseated by the sound of my voice and what I was talking about. And you were very kind and said that it was fine. And I asked you if it's okay, could we sit down again and could we have more of a conversation? And you were open to it. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you letting me sort of reconnect and tap in with you again. Listen, I am always happy to reconnect and tap in anytime, Gavin. Yeah. So it's great. it's a pleasure and a pleasure to speak again. And it was a great energy before, but it's also... Can I ask you something, Robbie? Absolutely. Are you, are, you just said you're an extrovert before we started talking. And, and I think mm -hmm. I, I sort of see myself as like an introverted extrovert or an, I'm, I'm not an introvert. I'm definitely an extrovert, but I have these tendencies to, I'm not really as comfortable in big groups. I can do it. I can switch over into something. I can charm. I can schmooze. I can do an opening night party, <laughs> but I, do I enjoy an opening night party? I'm going to be honest. No, they're not my thing. I'd rather have this conversation with you or sit down at a dinner. And I'm just curious, like with you, do you find a similar or, or are you, are you fed by, you know, being around a lot of people and, 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 and there's no wrong answer. So I'd love to hear. Great. I, and the first question comes from Gavin. For no, me. I'm no, serious I'm, because I've been thinking a lot about this. About we talked. I have always just, have always felt like an extrovert. I've just always felt like I love being with people. I also grew up an only child. So I think I had a lot of time by myself and I was always calling the neighborhood kids and being like, let's play, let's put on a play. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's do all the things and really found my siblings and community of, you know, doing theater when I was younger. And so many of us have that story, Yeah. but I, I always felt like, oh, I don't need alone time. I don't need to recharge. And I've been in relationships for most of my life. I've had a partner. But, but cer certainly during the pandemic, I have found that alone time is very important to me. And as I get older and just learn more about myself, I do understand that alone time and recharging is extremely necessary for me. Yeah. But yeah. moving out of the pandemic and starting to see people again, I am reminded that I am recharged by having this conversation with you. Yeah, like I yeah. will have conversations with podcast guests or a friend, or, you know, I'm going to go to a friend's birthday gathering in Central Park right after this. And that will oh. be, there'll be more people there, but that will be re recharging for me. So that's like where I'm landing now and obviously rethinking about it as we start seeing more people. Yeah. The, the reentry, I don't know if you're finding this, is I'm finding, frankly, a little challenging not that I can't do it, not that I don't have the ability to connect and reconnect with people, but that it's really dawning on me how long this has gone on and how not used to it, because don't get me wrong, this is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> like I, I didn't enjoy this time, but I also value 
the time and we're still in it, but I guess I, I, I'm having a bit of anxiety towards how much do I want to put back in the bowl that was emptied by this whole time? And do I really want to put this piece in or that piece? And I don't know what the answers are. I think before I would have thought I knew or I thought I was living a life and having a career that was chosen by me. And I think what I'm realizing more and more is that it was chosen by me, but it was chosen by me in an effort to please others. And I don't know that I was ever really looking or felt like I deserved to look at what I wanted. I thought my life is in service to a song or a piece or a character or director. Oh my gosh, we could talk about that for hours of the way that I've give all of my power away to directors again and again. And then when they don't affirm me, I feel like a failure or I feel like I'm trying to please them all the time. And no director wants an actor who's trying to please them. They want you to come up with ideas and be courageous and fearless. And the number of times in rehearsals that I have felt afraid is just paralyzing. And I hope I can find a new way forward in, in, in my next creative adventure. But I think this reacclimation and re-entry is causing all these questions to come up for me. For sure. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about re-entering into the business after this pandemic. What are you going to do or what do you think you can actively do to help yourself do exactly what you're talking about, you know, pick projects that are more important for you, you know, how are you going to, you know, not go back to before and try to, I will never go back (laughs) to be, oh, Marin Maisie. I know one of the Rebecca Luker, Marin Maisie. I mean, there's so many people we've lost, but just, just thinking of them, I cannot believe it. Something came up when you asked that question that I want to touch on the reentry and readjusting to a new version of yourself or myself in the business. The most obvious thing that I'm hearing and seeing and feeling is the number one priority as a human being in this time, the number one priority as an artist in the industry for me is social justice and racial justice and, and understanding what accountability responsibility, culpability do I have? What do, what have I not learned? What am I not seeing? What stories am I not connected or tuned into? How am I racist? Not if I'm racist, I am racist. There's just no way to escape it. And I'm trying to address those things. So the re-entry that is on the forefront of my mind in every conversation I have and every television show I'm watching and, and think, think I'm thinking. <laughs> but that's, that's the biggest thing that I'm thinking about as far as re-entry in. And the other thing, it sort of ties to that. And it also ties to the thought of what kind of artist do I want to be when I come back? I'm 45 years old. And, and I sort of, during the, the depression of this time and the pain of this time, I really kind of examined, if I'm lucky, this is about halfway. Act one is done. There was an amazing cliffhanger where a pandemic walked on stage and was like, I'll get you, curtain fell. And you're like, what the fuck? And now we've had the longest, most painful intermission. And if I'm lucky, I have about, you know, if I'm lucky, I have about the same length of act two. Act two is always a little bit shorter than act one. So I assume I've got, I don't know, let's say 30 years left. 
I, I'm sort of looking at act two is when things concentrate, get more focused. I really want to try to, in this part of my life, focus on the stories I want to tell and try to create them in the ways that feel authentic to me. I think that is huge. And I think that that is so important. Also, because when you create your own thing or when you have your own thing, that's something you have artistic agency and control over. And like, yeah. you don't have to wait for a phone to ring or someone to give you an opportunity. And it's also something that you can do after you do have like a big audition or screen test or something oh that you're gosh. feeling jittery and you're like, I just need to center myself by you know, the podcast, this podcast is that for me, but center yes. myself and do work where I can see the fruits of my labor, or I can see something that I'm doing that I have control over. It just yeah. is, a, a, for me, it's a mentally healthy thing to have. It's the only way. I mean, my writing, I started, I wrote my first song when I was 20 at the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera and Heather Mazur sat next to me on the floor of the rehearsal room during the show. We had a big break. We were in the ensemble of five different shows that summer. I would escape up to the rehearsal room where there was a piano and I was starting to poke around at the piano and go, I think I want to write a song. And I remember how daunting that that was because who am I to write a song? I am not quote unquote, a songwriter. I am not a writer period. I'm all these things you tell yourself you're not when you have never done something before. And then I got to admit a lot of times I back away from those things. I spent a lot of my life in fear that I think people who know me or see me in something or think they know me don't see that as much maybe because people are, whenever I say that to people, they're always like, what? You're like so courageous. You're fearless. I'm like, no, no, no. Christian Borel is fearless. <laughs> Chris Fitzgerald is fearless. Like I watch those guys create and I'm just like, oh my Lord, the fearlessness that it takes to be that kind of brilliant comedian or clown or inventive, you know, I just admire them so much. So when I was 20 in that room, I'm writing the song and I'm editing it and I'm, and I'm playing it for her and I'm terrified, Robbie. And I give it to her. And in that moment, Heather Mazur is the reason why I continued writing songs because I, I do believe that's what makes a great teacher so wonderful. If in that moment that you are courageous enough to step forward, she could have looked at me and gone, eh, or, oh, it's, it's good. And it would have just put that candle out for me. What I was met with was a soul that was like, you wrote that? And then she made me a songwriter in that moment. And because of that moment, and then I kept going, and then I shared with a couple more people, and I shared with a couple more people, it built, like you said, like a really solid branch off of the trunk of my tree. That The more I worked on it, the, the, the stronger it got, and the bigger it got, so that if I was tired from climbing, I could climb out on that and sit for a while. And I could find peace there for a while. I'm doing a concert at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on the 25th of October. And I'd love to talk about that more later, but I just had to write the copy with the Met publicity team. And we were sort of editing it down. And I said something to them that they put in the thing. I will read it to you. It says, I've composed an evening, Creel has composed an evening of original songs inspired by the countless hours he spent wandering the Met galleries to create material for what he described as, quote, a life-saving assignment during the most painfully dark time. And that's, I was like, right. That is how my writing saves me. Like during this time, if I didn't, this is going to sound so dramatic. I'm an actor, so suck on it. <laughs> but 
if I didn't have this project, I don't know how I would have made it through. I don't know how I would have survived because everything was taken away. Everything was gone for all of us. And we all had to go somewhere like you with the podcast was me with my writing and this project. As you know, when you're an actor and you get a job, that phone rings from the time they say you got it to the time you show up for the first rehearsal, you, you walk taller. I don't worry about Will I be someone? Will I succeed? Will my, is my career over? And equally crushing is the time between the end of that job and the next phone call. It can be. And that's why my writing buoys me through that time because that time will come for everyone. I love that. And I actually loved how you just put it, buoying it, buoying you through. And I am so thrilled that you are a songwriter because Gavin, I, I radio lover. Was, oh my you know, gosh. <laughs> that Good Time Nation album. I was oh, listening to that best. in college. Oh, I was listening to that in you, college. Bobby. And so I, were so many other people. So Thank you. Thank you. I'm really proud of that record. If you remember, I put that out in like 2005 and I was determined to be a pop star. I was like, I want to be a pop star. And I wanted to be gay from the jump. I wanted the first thing that people say to hear that I was a homosexual. And the first song was a song that actually Robbie started writing the first stanza, I think, and the tune. And then he brought it to me. He's like, I can't finish the song. This isn't mine to finish, but do you think this is a song you can finish? And the first lyric is, don't be alarmed, mom. Don't be ashamed. I'm still your baby. I'm still the same. Because <laughs> he was thinking about me being gay and I was still struggling with my sexuality. Even then I was out to my friends. I was out to people I work with, but I wasn't out publicly. I thought, yes, this is how I'm going to debut my music. And I thought, I want, to be a, I want to be so famous and a pop star that everybody knows I'm gay. And you have to remember, historically, Born This Way hadn't come out. Like Gaga mm. wasn't a thing. It was 2004. She was still writing songs for Britney Spears and, and different, you know, she was a young, brilliant songwriter, but she hadn't broken as a solo artist. And she wasn't saying stanzas like, whether you're gay, straight or bi, just trans transgender life and on the right track. When I heard that lyric, I was like, I thought, oh my gosh. And then immediately I was jealous because I was like, God damn it, this is what I wanted to do. <laughs> but I but I was really proud to have put that out as the first the first song you'd press play at Gavin Creel made a little pop record. I'm really grateful that I have found something creatively outside of my acting that gives me an opportunity not only to be creative in the same realm, but also be able to communicate something that I want to say or that I believe through art rather than through like, I don't know, statements to the world. And, and, and I have to be honest, the reason I wanted to do this again is because I listened to myself and I was like, if you're really trying to put your money where your mouth is or put your mouth where your art is, and, and it bothers, I, I was talking a lot about being bothered by the way that opinions and feelings and statements are are seem i i sense them a lot in the world and that when i listen back to what we did in the first recording that's all i was doing i'm a young soul robbie my soul is a child inside and every, it's like two steps forward three steps back sometimes and i hear myself talking and i just go uh, okay you sound like a kid and i'm and i'm still learning i'm still trying to figure my way I think we all are, but I think what's special is that 
I think we can look to the people who we idolize or who we think are doing it. And you are someone that people look to. And to hear you say that I'm still trying to figure it out, to hear you say and admit that you're, you have deep fears and have trouble being courageous. And I just think that that is very helpful. And that's what I'm trying to create because you give permission for other people to feel actually how they're feeling and realize that you don't have to feel brave all the time or, yeah. or you don't have to figure it out to win a Tony award. You don't have to have it all figured out. Do you know? No, well, gosh, no. I mean, I still don't quite understand all that, but I abs, but I absolutely dreamt of it absolutely wanted to win a Tony award and I'm so grateful to have ever been nominated. It is one of the most glorious feelings hearing your name called at those nomination. Truly Robbie, the nomination, the getting your name called to go up on stage is remarkable too, but I can say having been nominated three times, the nomination is a bigger deal to me because it is like, it is not, it is a communal experience. There's you and four other people that you get to share this moment with. Mm. I, I was having this experience with these other people that were in completely different shows, doing completely different things. The fact that there is a quote unquote winner, it's not a winner. It's, it's just, it's amazing. And then getting to be a part of the dinners and the talks and the speeches and the parties that month before is such an honor. And I remember this, the year of Hello Dolly, we went out to dinner. We went out to lunch at Cafe Un de Trois in, in Midtown, which I hope is still there. I fear it might be closed from the pandemic. I'm praying. I don't know, there. actually. I haven't been oh, down I'm there. I'm praying it's still there. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't either. All of us, Lucas Steele couldn't make it, but it was Mike for Dear Evan, Mike Feist and Andrew Rannells and Brandon Uranowitz and I. And we sat down and had the best lunch and talked all about the experience and what we, before the Tonys and you know, asked what people were wearing, what we were doing and talked about life and the business. And it reminded me why I'm in the theater is not to be alone, you know, is, is not to be the name that's called to go on stage. Because I was safe having very grateful again to have that award and that recognition, mainly because I wanted to say a speech. That was the main reason. I always dreamt of being able to talk for 30 seconds or a minute on stage and say what I wanted to say. And I said exactly what I wanted to say. I was really proud of it. But I want to dedicate this, oh my goodness, to the musical theater department at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance. My education there as a young person changed my life forever. My professors, my classmates, they instilled in me an appreciation for what it is to be an artist and what it is to be lucky to be a part of this incredible community. If you're out there and you have money, and I know a lot of you in this room have a lot of it, Start a scholarship. Change someone's life the way that Art and Marty Heron changed mine. My mom and dad, I love you so much. Henry, I love you so much. Um, okay, thank you. Thank you so much. The view of people giving speeches is what we all know so well. The view you don't know at all is standing there looking out that was probably the biggest thing. I was like, oh, everyone is still staring at you. 6,000 people. There's cameras. There's a time ticking down. And there's you holding this thing that you never thought you'd have. You only dreamt of. And Sutton Foster gave it to you. And you, 15 years earlier, you saw her winning one on the same spot 
for the first time when she won her first Tony. And and you're just like, and Scott Bakula is there from Quantum Leap, who I love. It was amazing and very solitary. And it was great. But the experience of being nominated was just magical, is magical. I don't know why I started talking about that. I think you brought up Tony Award and I just went down my Tony Award K-hole. <laughs> I'm so happy that you did because... <laughs> Hello, we all dream of it. Do you, of do you know? It's it's the dream. Uh, and the speech, of course, I've practiced my Tony speech. Absolutely. You know? so, Absolutely. Like, like <laughs> everybody thinks, if I won, what would I say? What would you No, no, don't tell me because I'll, I'll listen when you win. I'll listen when you win. Oh, my gosh. From your lips to the all the... All the Dionysus and all the theater gods everywhere. Got to get the job first. So... Yep, you'll get it. You'll get it. It'll come. Absolutely. Absolutely. I loved no. I just loved that that you that you talked about that because it's actually not a conversation I've. I, I, there's been other people who have won and been nominated on the podcast, but it's never something that I've talked about with any of them. So it's just a very it's just very special to hear the the backstage version of, you know, what that's like. Well, and the, I got to tell you another backstage. Well, the, the two favorite things of the entire thing, winning was nice, but it was not my favorite thing. It was the speech and my outfit. I had some misses in my time where I've thought I was cute and I was just a disaster. <laughs> But this one, I was so proud of what I look like because I talked to my friend, Jeff Mashey, who designed the Tony Ward nominated costumes for She Loves Me. He's one of my favorite people. I said, hey, do you think you could design something for me for the Tonys? Because I, I want to I wear something that you design. But anyway, I was so excited about that. And But I remember after you get the Tony Award, I don't know if I talked to you about this, but they hand it to you and Sutton gave me a big hug and kiss. And then she's escorted by her people and her team back to her, her seat. And then this PA is like, Mr. Creel, if you could come with me, I'm like, okay. And the Tonys are going, it's at the bad, you know, the next thing's going on. And, and I was the second award of the night. So we just started, it was just kicking off. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay. And they escort you to do press for the next two hours. You go to a different building you're taken out of the Radio City Music Hall, across the street, down down the block, into like a hotel, weird little, and there are hundreds of press agents and photographers where you're like paraded through a line of people and you go to that thing. I don't know if you've seen those things online where mm -hmm. they're on stage and they ask you questions and and you're holding this Tony Award and you're like, what? And she escorts me off stage and underneath the stage of Radio City Music Hall that's if you've ever been there, it's all hydraulic lifts. It's all elevators. And there's like a catwalk and you're looking down into the caverns of the the depths of Radio City Music Hall. And above you is the Tony Awards. And then you're going to the hallway. Did I tell you this already, Robbie? No, no. Oh my gosh. This is my one of my favorite stories about that night is I'm walking backstage and then they pull me into a room and they do my makeup to get me ready for the press because I'm probably all shiny and sweating, all that. And then I come around the corner and down the hall is this entourage of people tucked in the center is five foot two from head to toe, Michael Kors, Bette Midler. And I look and she's like, doll, she's like, congratulations. And then she's, I'm like, oh my God, I love you, Ben. She goes, I love you. I'll see you later. And she gets on the elevator and she turns around her whole team smashes just a team of people and bet in the center. She turns around right as I'm walking out the door through a metal detector and the metal detector goes off rip, 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 because I'm holding a Tony award. And I look down and I look at the metal detector and I look back at the elevator and I look at my, and I smile and Bet just goes, 
<laughs> as the doors are closing. As the door is closing, I'm just like, I will never forget that. Bette Midler laughing at that. I set off the the metal detector with my Tony Award as, as she's going up to present an award. Oh my, it was just magic. It was magic. I'll never forget it. Wow. Incredible. I love that story. I love that oh, story. Yeah. And yes, you looked fantastic. That like powder blue suit, right? Yeah. Yes. It was a little bit 70s. I want to do something. And and now the 70s fashion is like coming back in like bell-bottom pants and high-waisted bell-bottom pants. And I was like, Jeff Mashey, man, he's he's mm-hmm. on top. He's ahead of it. Yeah. It's really fun. So good. Yeah. I love hearing the story about the Tony Award. It's just, it's just really fun. And that's such a sweet story with Bet. And I mean, at some point, I have to imagine you just looked around and you were like, is this my life? Or do you know, well, like what is those, yeah. those moments of like, this is happening. You know, I want to like switch really hard right now to a different topic because what we were just talking about, I want to put in contrast with that moment of you with the Tony Award setting the metal detector off, Radio mm-hmm. City, Bette Midler, that moment. But then I wonder, this is, you know, full disclosure and honesty, and maybe your answer is no, but... And, and I think this is a topical question because of the pandemic and people are reevaluating their goals, their personal and professional paths forward. Was there ever a point where you wanted to leave the business? Or was there ever a point where you felt like, <laughs> I'm never going to work again, or I'm going to do something else? And, oh and I guess, what was that moment? And then how, what what moved you out of that moment? Or maybe you've never had that moment. But just thinking about that in contrast with where it's led for you is maybe kind of an interesting segue. Yes. It's a great thought and question. I'm just laughing because moment, (laughs) it's like plural. It's so plural. It's all the time. If my friends, my closest friends were to ask, be asked this question, they would roll their eyes and go, Oh God, next question. Gavin Creel spends more time trying to get out of the business than actively trying to activate within it. And I I know now a lot of that is just fear. It was just me being afraid of not being able to succeed or me being afraid that I'm not doing it right or I'm not good enough or frankly, the obstinance of youth within me that I still have now of just, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. And then not having the courage to actually look, why don't you, Gavin? And most of the time, it's because you're afraid. You're afraid of being exposed. You're afraid of looking stupid. You're afraid of not being good. You're afraid that people won't think you're good. And I have spent many times throughout my career asking myself, is this worth all this pain? Is it worth all the therapy I have to take and all of the ways I don't drink because it saved my voice? And the, is it worth the stress of opening nights that look all fun and they're fine and stuff, but they stress me out. And is it worth doubting myself every time I go in a room or trying to worry that I'm not good enough or that I won't get the job and I don't get the job and why don't I? And do I care enough to keep doing this? So yes, the short answer is all the time I, I think about leaving the business and think, what else could I do? You know, I have... um a real dream of finding something that gives me the family and the satisfaction and the community that theater has given me, but I just don't haven't found a better one. This is just the best. Is it perfect? 
Fuck no. It's a hot mess of nightmares right now. And and frankly, if you study musical theater history, the origins of musical theater are based in racism. The very beginning of our industry as musical theater is minstrel shows, is blackface. Everything this is born out of is systemic racism. So until we, I, until I come to terms with that and then figure out how I can be an active part of becoming a partner to fix that, I, I don't know. It's again, it's what I'm thinking a lot about. But as far as me and qu quitting the career, yeah, I do. I think about it all the time. Maybe if you could think about like a specific moment where you're like, this was really real. I was really going to leave. You know, for me, yes. I can like think of two moments. And one was because, you know, like I was almost promised this big job in New York that was really going to be changed my career. And, you know, you start envisioning it and that didn't happen. And I was like, I can't take the heartbreak anymore. Oh, and so God, many people so have sorry. stories of like, I'm sure I can't imagine someone like you having that experience, but I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have wanted to roll and, you know, not gotten it. And it's like, it's not just getting a job. It's like, it's literally, sometimes your heart feels like it's breaking, you know, it's, it's something like, it's that you your really. Identity. It's your identity. It's what you put all your time and energy into Robbie. And no, you're, you're very compassionate and generous to say like, it's, I have those moments too. But I will say I'm not blind to the fact that when I have achieved a certain, I, I don't want to say notoriety or, or achieve, achievement, I've gotten to a certain level of achievement. I do have certain things that will catch me. I can lean back on like jobs that I've done or moments my name has been called. You know, like there are moments when if I really doubt that s s young people, people who haven't had the luck and the opportunity that I have had don't have those to fall back on. So the doubt, it's a lot harder when you don't have what I have had. So so mm -hmm. I appreciate you being compassionate to that, but I absolutely understand that I my privilege is is immense and I have a softer place to land, to quote waitress, <laughs> than then you may with when that call comes through that you didn't get that job. So I'm so sorry. No, totally fine. But all that to say like you know, I'm curious for you when you go into that place, however, you know, of like, I'm going to leave, what, what gets you out of that place? Or how do you find that I actually am going to continue in the industry? And you know what, sometimes the answer might be like, I just got another job and I realized it was okay. Yes. It was a great job, you know, and that's honestly like that, me not getting that job. The other half of the story is that a month later, I got an even better job that I wouldn't have been able to do had I gotten that other one. And, you know, there's also stories like that. And then I, you know, got out of my funk and was like, I guess I'm, you know, going to keep going in the, in the business. But I just wonder for you, why have you stayed? Maybe something you've done, or maybe it's just, if you can even articulate like why you, you keep going or, or what happens that allows you to keep going. It's a great question, Robbie. The quick answer that everybody would probably say is because there's nothing else I can imagine doing. Another surface answer is the attention is really wonderful. Let's get real. Like I am not above loving the affirmation and validation. What I have learned during this pandemic is that's a little bit kicking the can down the road. If you don't address that addiction to that validation from the outside, it's mm. going to come in. It's, it came, it came and found me in a big way this during this last year and a half without the applause and people adoring you and people saying you're amazing. And even if, they may not mean it. You know, it's really easy to get addicted to that attention. So 
I'm just going to call myself out and just be like, part of it is that. But truthfully, I think the thing that keeps me from stopping, I think right now is this show that I'm writing. (laughs) I've always dreamt of creating one thing that I can leave, that I can do and leave. And, And maybe I'll stop after this is over. I doubt. I mean, maybe I won't. I don't know. But everything now is icing to me. And the jobs I get, sometimes you said it, they're just distractions from the question of, do I want to stop? And then sometimes they are, I'll, I'll give you an example. This is, this is the example you asked about. I love when the industry or the job surprises me, where I think I know what I want to do. And then I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to do that but I do it anyway. And I think you're not listening to your gut. You're not following what you really want. And then it always shows me something that I didn't know about myself. It shows me something. And the Book of Mormon was one of those things where I was asked to come in and audition for the tour. And my ego was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to audition for a tour. It's already, I want to originate roles. And my friend, Andrew Reynolds is a star because of that. And and I was intimidated by what he did. And I was like, I can't do that. I can't sing that high. I can't, it's it's like a sense of humor. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'm not funny. And I don't know if I understand South Park humor. And I was just scared. And so I turned the audition down and then they went away. And and through a, a bunch of different events, largely due to Casey Nicola, I was called with a possible offer and I didn't have to audition because I guess they had looked for somebody and Casey kept saying, it's Gavin. You want Gavin. You want Gavin. I know Gavin. I know he could do this. And they go, well, well he's not going to come in an audition. It wasn't that I wasn't going to audition. It's just I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go on tour. I didn't want to replace, seemingly replace my one of my closest friends. And it just felt like something that I was like, oh, it'll be it'll be too weird and too. Long story short, a bunch of things happened. It was a contract I could not turn down, and I said yes. And I was terrified, and I just sort of dove into it. And Robbie, what I learned from that show, a show I didn't want to do, I thought I was only going to do for a year. I ended up doing for three and a half years in four different companies, traveled the world, traveled the country, did it for a year on Broadway. I learned so much. And I wrote this while you were asking, I just wrote, trust the process is sometimes I'm so know-it-all and obstinate about my life and I want to be in charge of my life and I want to be in control of it. And most of the time, sometimes, most of the time, all of the time, it is written so much better than any way I could write it. So I just have to like relax and trust the process of my life. And every time I go, oh, forget it. I'm just going to say yes. It always is written so much better than I could write it. And that's when I go, just trust the process. And you're allowed to say no sometimes, but a time I remember, a time I remember when it was like, I'm done. I was on the Book of Mormon tour and I had done four months on the road to begin. And I'd only missed, a f- I missed, the- I was sick during tech and my understudy sat in the audience and sang over the God mic while I lip synced on stage. It was so humiliating, but I was so sick and I had to be on stage to, and he was fantastic. But I was embarrassed because I was like, oh my God, I'm literally one of the leads of this play and I'm doing the tech in front of all the producers and everybody and I can't sing. And they're probably all shitting their pants that I'm not going to be able to do this job. And then I was fine. Opening night was fine. I got sick once in LA when we were there for three months. But other than that, I didn't miss any shows. But the show was so stressful to sing. It's a hard role to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I went to London and I got sick again in rehearsals fraud. And then I started getting sick like every two months. And I now realize it was stress. It was, I just, my body could not handle the stress. I was in Toronto after I'd done four months on the road and I did a year and a half in London and I had all kinds of ups and downs like while I was there. And I had knee surgery right after the London run. I was out for six weeks before they put me back on the tour. And you had won an Olivier award yes, for the role, yes, which I yes. feel like we just have to mention because that's an incredible, incredible honor and validation. And, yes, you know, yeah. I, I mean, that's, that was amazing that that, you thank know, you. It was a so huge, well earned, huge but. honor during all this time where I'm getting recognized and getting to play this amazing part in a first class production and originate the role there. It was lonely and stressful of like waking up in the morning and going, hmm. And knowing I have to climb that mountain tonight. I have to climb that mountain two times today. And I was try I just kept trying to tell myself, you're fine. You're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And it was most 99% of the time it was fine. But there was a solid 1% of the three and a half years where I missed a lot of shows. And we were in Toronto and I just had my knee surgery. And I went in and I did like four weeks of the shows. And then the fifth week, I got viral laryngitis. I was perfectly fine. I was not sick at all. And while I was singing the show, I felt my voice, the register of my voice was kind of like, like a sock was on my vocal cords. I was like, what's happening? I'm not sick. And then I woke up the next day and I had no voice. I was like, oh crap, I got to call out. And I was set into that same shame spiral of, oh my God, my voice, my voice that I had been in for the last two years, you know, being on the road in London. And Robbie, over the next 34 shows, I did nine of them. And then I had I, I asked for a week or two weeks off to go to the, the voice doctor in, in Ann Arbor and that I was in college. I took so many steroids. I had shots. I did vocal. I didn't speak. And there was I came back into the show at one point thinking, okay, I'm fine. I did two shows and I was out for another week. And at that time, I remember calling my best friend and bawling on the phone and going, I can't do this anymore. I can't, it's not worth it. It's no amount of money, no amount of awards or fame or anything. I can't, my body is dying here. I'm so stressed out. My voice is, is being punished because I keep saying, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you able to get, get it this right? I was a mess. And I finished, I, and I was already contracted to do that year on Broadway. So I, I was able to get myself back. I finished that run and then I had Christmas off, I think, and I rested again, and I started the Broadway company, and I did pretty well on Broadway, but I missed shows on Broadway as well, and I really could never get behind, out from behind that eight ball. I just felt so stressed out the whole time, and I, was, I just was like, this isn't worth it. I'm miserable, and then I, and then I had the day off, and I started She Loves Me rehearsals the day after my <laughs> closing a Book of Mormon on Broadway. And I'm proud to say I didn't miss one show in the six months that we did. And I got sick during that, but I was able to find my way through. It's a much easier part to sing. That was a long answer to say it was a, it's, I still have PTSD about singing from that show. And I'm constantly trying to be gentle with myself. And as I age, my voice is changing and it's sounding different. And it's doing different things. And I'm like, Gavin, you're allowed. You have permission to get older. Your permission to your voice has permission to change. But it's hard when your identity is wrapped up in people saying to you your whole life, oh my God, your voice, oh my God, your voice, you're such a great singer. And it's and it's given me power. It's given me money. It's given me a career and identity and a life. And 
it's given me a lot of stress. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly like you said, you are someone when someone's, you know, when we talk about some of the best male voices working on Broadway, your name is always in that group of people. And being able to hear you talk about that it's not always perfect, that it's actually giving you a tremendous amount of anxiety and that it has been very difficult and that it's not smooth sailing. And that I, I just think talking about it gives people permission. And I think that's what we're doing a little bit right now and just sharing that these thoughts about, you know, your voice and your relationship with your voice. So thank you. Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm I'm also happy to talk about uh, the fact that I believe when I sang it was a half a step down from what Andrew sang. And there was a real, especially with tenors, there was a real pressure and stigma that the higher you sing, the better your singer you are. And if you can't sing high, you're not as good as people who can. And I, I call total bullshit on that because it's a mind fuck that you think because I can't sing it in a certain key that I lack something. We all bring different things to when we communicate through song. And the truth is I was absolutely embarrassed when they came to me during previews of the Denver tryout at the beginning of the tour for Mormon. And they said, Hey, we want to Stephen Arimus call and say, Hey, can you come to the theater early? We want to talk about the key to I believe. And I was mortified, but I went cause it was my job. And Trey Parker comes in and he goes, just so you know, I wrote the key like a quarter of four, four steps down from where Andrew sings it. Um, we can put it wherever you want, but we want it to feel good for you. And that helped a little bit, but I was still embarrassed. And then we went down a step and it was too low and we came down a half a step and it just locked into place. Now, again, I, I understand my privilege of being where I am in my career and the age that I was when I played that part and the career that I'd had that they were like, well, let's just see. And then we were in an out of town tryout and they had that costs money to change the charts and stuff. If I can be a part of demystifying um, that for young male singers is work within the space that you have and work gently to, or, or, or challenge yourself to try to expand your range or expand your tone or relax your larynx or all the technical things you can do. But at the end of the day, my voice is my voice and what I can do with it is my business. There may be jobs that I'm sorry, we need you to be able to sing a high B natural and I'm going to go, is it negotiable? No. And then, then that's, then that's not the job for me. And me getting mad at that job is a, for me, an ex exercise in futility. It's just not the job for me. That's again, it's, I hold up this card, trust the process. Like my therapist always says to me, you can't miss what's coming. You can't miss what's for you. It's, it's, mm -hmm. and I, and I really do believe that my faith in that has really buoyed me through all of those times I wanted to quit my faith in my writing and my creative process has gotten me through that. My faith that I don't know better than God. I call it God. You can call it anything you want. I, I love, I lo love all of that. I think it's just super helpful to hear and to talk about. We just talked about Book of Mormon and obviously it was a, um, we talked about the, some of the negative parts of, of Book of Mormon, but it also you also talked about how you, you were able to travel the world and you won an incredible award that w people took notice of and will help you get work moving forward. And so the Tony Award and Hola Dolly, and you were yeah. so incredible in that. And I'm not saying that anything that people aren't thinking, but those were produced by Scott Rudin and right. the Hollywood Reporter article that came out accounting um, some alleged behavior. And... And I'm grateful that you're willing, you know, whatever you're willing to say about this, but I guess through the lens of 
younger people listening to the podcast who are entering the business who I had an, an issue when I was 19 doing summer stock, actually doing playing Nick in a production of fame. Hey. And, and it, I just was treated not well, but I just thought as a young person when I was 19, like, that's okay, you know, or I just need to deal with it because that's the business. So just looking through it in that lens or whatever, you know, you want to say yeah. about it, that's the only reason I'm asking is because I think it's, it is important to address it because the first thing is just being, being aware of it. And I wish that I was aware, more aware in that moment when I was 19, just about, you know, standing up for yourself and not letting people speak that way. I'm sorry you had to go through that. And, and and I'm sorry to say that you're not alone in those moments. As we learned from the Hollywood Reporter uh, article and those people going on record to tell those stories, I don't obviously support any of that behavior. Like that there's no, there's no place for that in a workspace. I'll come back to that in a second, but I want to address what you just said about young people and feeling safe. There's a real reckoning we have with coming to terms with how many of us in this industry have not felt protected. I want to use that word instead of safe because feeling protected and feeling like you are feel, feeling like if I'm in a show and I feel supported and protected and I'm in a space that allows me to be able to access the very uncomfortable and scary and vulnerable places of myself that I am going to be required to pull from and access to be able to communicate the song or the story or play the character. Uncomfortable, vulnerable, you know, these are the words, this is the space I need to, so I need to know that when I'm not in that very scary and frankly, not it doesn't feel as safe when you have to like dig in to find your Nick Piazza or your Elder Price. It's not a safe space that we're asked to go into as artists. It's scary and it's uncomfortable. What I want to be careful of is colluding that feeling of feeling unsafe with it's the same as I'm not protected in the room. Because not only do we avoid being daring as artists, but we undercut people in the room who are actually not protected. We, as I'm saying, as white people, in a lot of cases, make our fragility and our own uncomfortability the focus again, when in the room with many, most rooms, I've been really fortunate to be in shows that have had a larger BIPOC representation on stage. But majority of the time, it's rooms full of, especially on the creative side, of white people. And by us being precious about our being comfortable, I worry that sometimes I can take the attention and the support away from people who actually need what it takes just to show up in these very white rooms. That's what I'm examining right now. So as far as Scott is concerned, I have a reckoning with myself and I've had it since I read that article because I have experienced five years of extremely supportive employment from that producer. And I just had to examine what does that mean? And that's the truth. It's a little bit like I can't unwrite that I didn't work for him. I also have to be honest. And this is the part that I, the people who are listening might find challenging, 
but it is also the truth, my truth. I got two opportunities, two huge opportunities from a producer who is reported to have behaved with his staff and assistants in ways that no one is supportive of. Mm-hmm. And and I have been treated with kindness and generosity and support and frankly, creative brilliance in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I'm reckoning with what does that mean and what, what does that look like? And thankfully, Scott, who is a human being, who is fallible and who's behaved very badly, as far as I know from the little communication I've had with him and from what I've read and what I've seen is he's taking responsibility for it and he's putting in place actions. Will that be enough for many, most, any people? No, but I do think there's a lot of nuance to these sort of conversations that sometimes I have the ability, you know, when somebody does something to be able to see the layers of, of what led them there or what makes people do certain things. And then sometimes I am just like, that person's a dick. I never want to speak to them again. You know, so mm-hmm. I, un- I understand that in my own self, you know, that that's it, Robbie, what, what that did for me was cause me to look inward and go, who have I treated poorly? Who have I yelled at? In what ways, when I have been in power, have I lost my patience? Because I've absolutely lost my patience. I've absolutely raised my voice. I don't remember being physically violent in those ways, but I know I've intimidated people. I know I've done things. Have I done it to a certain extent that was reported? No. And will I try not to get to that place again? Yes. And I will hopefully use this example as, and 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 the way that the public is not putting up with it anymore, as cool, I'm going to put myself on watch here and try to be more compassionate and try to be more nuanced and not fly off the handle or lose my temper or get defensive. It's just complicated for me because I have seen as as many of us have the out the creative output that that producer that Scott has made the 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 material the opportunities the many people that have worked because of shows that he's made and now I'm just hopeful that he's getting the help he needs and that the people who have been who have suffered at his hand have the help and support that they need because I imagine bringing all this up is extremely traumatic for those people. And I can't imagine what it must be like to relive that or be asked to relive it or have people come back to you and scratch that up. So it's just a terrible situation for everybody involved, especially the people who suffered from that terrible behavior. Yeah. And what we talked about last time when we chatted, I, almost started, you know, by saying, this is someone who has produced some of my favorite theater, you know, and some things on Broadway that would never have been produced on Broadway that maybe were not viable commercial smashes, you know, like we talked about Doll's House Part 2 last time and how I told you about how there was a part in the show that gave me strength to make a change I needed to make in my own life. You know, there are these, and so I'm forever grateful for that theatrical opportunity. So it's one of those like, that you said separating that these wonderful opportunities and this wonderful art, but from, but you know what, you know what I would say to that, Robbie is we need to be mindful, especially as young creators and people who are venturing into the creative path, that there is brilliant work 
and violent or intimidating behavior are not mutually exclusive. Like, like mm-hmm. the, these things do not have to go together. I think it's really easy to, especially with great artists, you hear these rom- quote unquote romantic stories of he was a nightmare to work with and he abused people. And, and I'm not talking about Scott or he was, he was um, insane or, or the person was a, but look what he left us paintings that hang in the Louvre and, and statues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to live in that world. <laughs> I don't want, I don't, I would rather work with somebody who is a quarter less genius and a a quarter more compassionate, kind, collaborative. I know I can speak for myself. I shut down in, in in creative intimidation. I shut down and I just become a person who tries to serve you what you want to eat. And then you get madder at me because you want me to come up with stuff. It's what I was talking about earlier intimidation and me in a creative space, you're going to get no good work. I think while Doll's House Part 2 and Hello Dolly, I'm very proud of and, and Book of Mormon and, and the many things that he's made, I hope he's able to get the help he needs and have the recompense that, that is necessary and, and, and heal the places that he needs to heal and take the time that is necessary in the court of public opinion so that he can come back healed if that's the pathway to never repeat those behaviors and give us his gift of creativity. But if he can't do that, his creativity and his brilliance is not worth the cost. It's just not. hundred percent completely agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that and, sure. and chatting about it. It's, it's a hard thing to talk about, but I think that again, you know, we said this before by having the conversations, it's, it's kind of the, the first step. I got, I'm going to say, I'm just going to finish it with this and then I don't talk about it. Scott is a human being. He is a human being that I know. And I've, I, I am, I have, I'm connected to where I, if I didn't know him and I wasn't connected to him, it would be very easy for me to vilify him completely, which I've done. And I'm now looking at that. Wow. It's harder for me because I have a relationship to him to just cut him out. And when I look at that from the macro view, that is, I think, the key to understanding human beings. And that's why theater is so important. Because when you know my story, when you know me, it is harder to walk away from me. And that, if I can go farther than Scott, is murderers, is, is people who commit terrible atrocities, is to look and see if I know this person. I mean, imagining the family of people who are related to people who do terrible things in the world and they are not terrible people. The families of them, the the pain and the struggle that goes, their friends and their family. I just, it, ha- it makes me now have more compassion towards, is it really graceful to just exclude and cancel and no, you're done. I know that's what I want to do. And I know that that's what, but when I know the person, uh, I think the stories are what makes us have more compassion and being connected to them and and then maybe even helping them to find the help that they need or being there to support them as they heal hopefully maybe I'm naive in saying it but that's 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 what I dream 
Yeah. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. We're definitely going to move on. But thank you so much for you know saying that and very well, very well said. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. You know, the, the one other thing that we got to talk about before that um, I just really loved, it is Pride Month. It's just on our heads. It's on our minds. It's a time, you know, we are celebrating who we are 365 days a year and being proud. But this is a month that we just get to talk about it and celebrate it. And um, in whatever way we choose to celebrate it. I like when I watched Tu Wong Fu last night. Never seen uh, that movie, but just like watching it. No. What no. did you think? What did you think? Oh my God. My first thought is why isn't this a musical? First of all, they're making a musical one. I, and then someone said, yeah, they are. They are. Gavin, you got to do it. You got to call oh and be, be into <laughs> that would be fun. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a good, it's such a good movie. I have to, maybe we'll watch that tonight. Just, just, and I, I bring that up and just saying like, I'm celebrating by trying to watch some queer movies that I had never seen before and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. all of that. But I'm just interested, I am interested in talking to actors who are um, out and we kind of talked about this at the beginning of our conversation in the business and just interested in if you can share a little bit about when you came out publicly and if that was a scary moment if you felt like it was going to impact your career. Again, I know a little bit of the story now. I'm happy to talk about it. I came out when I was 20 to my friends um, at college. I came out to when I was 25 to my mom and dad. It was a really tough but beautiful time. Um, and then I came out professionally when I was 33, right before we were going to do hair. I was doing an interview for Advocate or Out Magazine, and Justin Ocean was the interviewer. I did a little photo shoot and I went to the back of this photo studio and sat down with him. And he was asking me if I had any similarities between the character Claude Hooper Bukowski that I was going to play um, in my professional or maybe personal life. And I saw that he, where he was going and I never, I didn't plan it. And I was sitting there and I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to say it. And I said, you know, Claude is possibly questioning his own sexuality in, in, in the version that I'm looking at and the way, the way that I want to play him. And I do identify with him because I'm gay. And, and I get you would have thought like a rock came out of my chest. It just felt like a moment where I was able to kind of take my power back a little bit. And what was shocking to me was that that little AP article got a little, it, 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 it made it into the AP. It was in a release in a few little places. And this was after I'd only done a couple of Broadway shows and I wasn't, you know, I hadn't won any awards or anything. And, I don't know. I just didn't think I was known by that many people. And I'm not, I'm still, I mean, I, I, there's just some good solid theater loyal fans out there who know who I am, but you know what I mean? Like outside of the 10 block radius of Broadway, a lot of people don't know what we're up to here. And I kind of love that. I'm, so, I'm such a nerd. Um, mm -hmm. But I also really, it's, I have a self-awareness of, of my reach, I guess, if that's, if there's such a thing, but the fact that it got picked up a little, it made me go, why did that get picked up? Why does anybody care about this? And I realized because, at the time, not a lot of people were out that were succeeding or successful or whatever. I don't know if it's as much of a problem now. I'm really inspired by the young people who are just like, or that Caleb Nassib, that sexy football player who just came out of the closet and the mm -hmm. first out NFL player. He did it so he's like, hey, everybody, I'm just on my Instagram. I just want to tell you I'm gay. And I was like, oh, my God, that it could be that easy just to say it. I'm sure he was stressed out. I was stressed out to come out myself professionally. But the weight that was lifted, because now I everybody knows and it doesn't matter. I worried a bit that I was going to be pigeonholed. If I'm honest, 
the, for the most part, most of the parts that I get called for for film and TV are to play gay characters, which I don't mind. I'm like, as long as they're interesting parts, I'm, I'm happy to play gay the rest of my life because that's just to say that there's only a couple stories that we have to tell. And that's a lie. We have infinite number of stories. And, and I love not having to worry about passing or convincing or whatever. It's really re- relieving. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh, when you're going in for a gay role and you can you can just be yourself yeah. and like just relax into it. It just feels really good because I don't know about you, but when you're going in for certain things, not always, but when you're it's like a romantic lead or do you know what I mean? You just need to yeah. it's not completely as authentic, you you're know. Code, as, you're code as, switching. Uh, you're code switching. You're like exactly changing exactly. the way. Yeah. And it's, it's not something that I think a lot of people think about in the way that you and I do, but mm-hmm. to anybody out there who's listening, I would say if you're young and you're worried about, I was talking to Michael McElroy, who's, oh, I am so happy to say He's this. Brilliant. He is taking over as the chair of the musical theater department at the University of Michigan School of Music Theater and Dance next year. And it is a coup that our school got, got him at the time in his career when they got him. But he was talking to me about remembering that you're not being asked to abandon who you are when you're asked to play things with a different energy or a different um, code switch, to be frank. Mm-hmm. You're asked to honor the character. You're asked to honor the story. You're being asked to serve in service to the piece. And if, if there's something, I just love the way he said that. You're, you're, you're a servant. In, in, in the, you're, you're asked to be a person of service, to give yourself of service, to elevate and honor a thing that no one is in charge of. It's this ethereal, beautiful thing that lives higher than all of us. If we succeed and we all work hard and even then we put it out and the audience might be like, meh, or they might actually say, oh my gosh, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. But if you're asked to, I've heard butch it up or, or you're too gay or I'm sorry. It's just not, you know, I've heard it all. I'm like, all right, then that's not a part for me. Just like if I'm too short or too tall or too skinny or too fat or whatever, then I don't want to do that job. It becomes a little tricky when members of the straight community are asked to portray queer characters. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm just going to say this as my own vote. I'd like if, especially if the story is about our lives and about our story and about being gay I'd like to see queer characters played by queer people. And I don't believe it's the same the other direction. I think somebody told me in comedy, it's punch called punching up. I don't really know the term, so I'm not going to talk about it. But it's like a minority can make fun of a majority, but a majority can't make fun of a minority. Like it's like we, we have so few opportunities, I think, where, where we're allowed and asked to tell our story. Let me tell it. Let, please, or let, let one of my brothers or sisters or non-binary individuals let them tell it and let's let's tap into the the wealth of talent that's out there that is oftentimes asked to homogenize themselves or when they do homogenize themselves the trauma that that takes to do that and then they don't get the job and then a heterosexual person gets the job over them so not only are you not good enough to pass or you're not good enough to you can't even play characters that you are it's just something to think about i think to how that's hard and 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 then to take my own advice the business is hard you don't get jobs sometimes and the reason why is sometimes nauseating like that 
so I think for me, I'm just, I can't say enough about get creative, get writing, get imagining, start making your own material, start telling your own stories, write a stand up type five or type 10 or whatever it is, get a play reading group together and start writing scenes that you perform for each other. Just, I find so much peace and so much power in my creative process that I do on my own. Hmm. So then when things like that happen, where I don't know, some straight guy wins a, an Oscar for being courageous and playing a gay person. I don't get too bent out of shape about it because I'm like, ugh, whatever. I'm, I'm just going to keep working on my story. But that said, if my story has queerness in it, I'm going to tell it and I'm going to pray that people want to hear it. And my story <laughs> does have queerness in it. So <laughs> hopefully people will like it. <laughs> I'm sure they will. I'm, I'm sure, sure they will. I'm really proud of what I'm making. That's for sure. I was doing workshops of Wicked, the musical. I was playing Bach. They used to say I've never heard of Wicked. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you were playing um, Bach? I was. I was. Christian Chenoweth used to have this line where she would point across the music stands and say in the reading, she'd go, do you see that unusually tall munchkin over there? And I would wave back. I'd be like, hi. <laughs> the whole joke was that I was like this gigantic munchkin, like something was wrong with me. But it was really, it was really fun. I did two, a reading in New York and a reading in LA. And I got to meet Mark Platt, who is obviously a huge success and a producer in the industry and ran Universal for years and years and has produced amazing things, Legally Blonde and the Dear Evan Hansen movie and uh, La La Land and a million other things, um, including Wicked. And because I knew him and I met him and he was, had become sort of a mentor to me as I was trying to find my way in the beginning of the industry. And he's still a mentor to me. I have such respect and, and gratitude for Mark. Um, he said, come have tea with me. And we had tea at the four seasons in the lobby. And I was like, this is fancy. And I go in there and I, and I was just in a bad way because I was dealing with, you know, I had this boyfriend, at the, my first boyfriend at the time. And I think I was in Thoroughly Modern Millie and I was grappling with like, not really being able to say I'm gay with a full voice and worrying at the beginning of this career, I'm having this huge moment. I got nominated for a Tony award. And can I tell people who I am? Because I'm afraid the industry is just going to then exclude me from the majority. Let's be real. The majority of the parts that are out there are for heterosexual people, they're heterosexual characters. It was a different time. It was 2002. Oh my God. It was almost 20 years ago, you know, and it was hard. And there were not a lot of out celebrities and there were not a lot of out people that I could look to and point to in that way, except for at the time, what we would have called like really out there, really out people who were defined by their sexuality. I mean, I saw Ellen DeGeneres come out of the closet and then her show was canceled. And that, that was very fresh in my head. And she was not a talk show host. She was a lesbian comic who couldn't get work. She hadn't really been able to find a way after that. It was painful for her. And I was like, okay, so we know that's what happens. That's what Hollywood happens in America. Mm -hmm. And I sat down with Mark and Mark talked to me and he was like, are you happy? What comes first? Your life comes first. If, if you can't live your honest life, you can't be honest with who you are and live in an authentic way for yourself. And if that way is you want to tell people you're gay, then you must. And this is Mark, like then live your honest life. And having somebody who was as powerful in Hollywood and as powerful on becoming powerful on Broadway had such success, look me in the eye and tell me that. I was like, okay. Um, and I just felt 
so grateful. And I still feel so grateful for him telling me that. And I think I can say my life has become infinitely better since I came out, since I was honest with my family and my friends, since I was honest in the business with who I am. Because then I've met this amazing woman named Nicole Robinson in the last few weeks, um, who's teaching me a lot of stuff about anti-racism. And she has this beautiful, powerful, um, self-knowledge about knowing as a, as a young, beautiful black woman, she's just like, I know that I'm right. I, I just a peace of mind. And when she said that last week in this class, I was like, right. That's how I felt when I came out of the closet. I was like, you can call me all the names you want, but I know I'm right. I know in my heart that I'm right. Then they can come at you with anything and you're like, okay. So anyway, long answers. And you also know that I tend to love to talk and Robbie is the easiest person to talk to. Oh my gosh. You're you so are. kind. You are. You're so kind. I appreciate it. And I'm just, I'm loving, this is not an interview for me. I'm just loving hearing what you're saying because it's just, it. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm in trying to think about it and apply all this stuff to my own life and career as, you know, hopefully people that are listening are also doing. So I, I appreciate it. And I, I appreciate that we were able to cover so much today and be able to chat again. And I also appreciate you letting me have another go at this because the, the bottom line that I want to say about that is I hope I've been able to communicate clear, more clearly and, and more compassionately. That's another thing Michael McElroy said, grace. Like there's a lack of grace in the response of cancel culture, for example. There's a lack of grace in not really knowing the stories of people. There's a lack of grace in in sympathy, empathy, compassion. You know, when we don't we don't exercise those, we lack a grace. And I just loved hearing him say that. And I appreciate you affording me that grace by letting me have a chance to chat with you again. Always. Great. I'm, I'm so happy to. I'm so happy to. Great. I just want to leave the listeners with, you know, the last, the last story that you told when we talked before was just, it's this amazing story that no one, it's never going to happen this way for anyone else. But I just feel like I loved the intention and, and behind it. And what I'm talking about is the long, it's not the long story, but the end of the story is you landing your agent, you know, and how oh, that yes. happened yeah. and how that came out of, just as you say, and as a theme of you and and what I'm learning from you is you're such a, a champion and committed to your artistic process and doing the work and kind of have, you know, putting on those headphones and those blinders and being like, no, I can't control that. I'm going to control my work and what I'm going to do and be the best that I can yes. be at it. You know, that's that's what I hear. And and one of the examples I feel is, and I don't want to tell the story for you, but that you started when you were a young actor moving to New York, and I think it's helpful for others to hear singing for the musical theater program at NYU. Yes. And you were never going to know that it was going to lead to what it led to, but you did it because it was just doing the work. I'm going to say the short story is what I just talked about, Mark Platt, getting to have the ear of Mark Platt is a privilege. And the mm -hmm. privilege backed up from being able to do the wicked reading and Mark being like, who's that? unusually tall munchkin over there <laughs> and the way that happened was doing the work in that i moved to the city and my friend mike babel 
was at the, um, he was at his apartment in Midtown and I was at his house hanging out with nothing to do. And I look at this coffee table and there's this little paper. It says NYU on the letterhead. I was like, Ooh, Mikey, fancy NYU. And he goes, Oh yeah, read that. And I read it and it's this woman, Marie Costanza. I don't know if she still runs the NYU musical theater grad writing program. A lot of amazing people have come out and it just said, we're doing a cattle call for any young singers or any singers period who want to come and audition. And if we select you, we'll just put you in our file. And then when, you know, Robbie Simpson is a graduate musical theater writer and he's written a new show. Uh, he needs a unusually tall munchkin. So let's call that guy in and see if he's good. And so I went down there, no call, you know, it says, okay, thank you. It was like, okay, whatever. Went on with my day. And then a few weeks later, I got a call to come in and audition for this project called The Flood. I went in and I auditioned and I got this part and I was so excited. And again, it was like getting a Broadway show because when you're first in New York City, your work begets work. Just take the work. It doesn't matter if it's good. It doesn't matter if it's a part you want to play in the beginning. That's a luxury I now have as a 45-year-old man and I've been in the business for a while. But in the beginning, I didn't have that luxury. It's just like, just go. Go to the audition. Even if you don't think you're right for it. Even if they pull, put you in the reject pile, you know. But I got pulled out of the pile and got I got this part. And it was a reading. And there was, you know, it's like a week and a half or two weeks of rehearsal, sitting in a room with no windows. And then it was done. And... That was, I thought was it. And it was really cool because it was a really good part. I got to sing this called Highway, this song called Highway Miles, which I still kind of love that song. And then a few weeks later, Pete Mills calls and says, hey, Gavin, I've actually just been accepted into the BMI workshop. And I was like, what's that? And he said, well, they do this thing, this musical theater thing once a month where Stephen Schwartz, and I'm like, holy shit, Stephen Schwartz wrote Pippin and Godspell, bing, bong, bing. Stephen Schwartz hosts this thing for a bunch of young writers in a, in a conference room at the, or at the ASCAP. I think it was the ASCAP writing. And they go on a Thursday night and there's cookies and punch. And then they come and they've asked us to bring my writing. So we're going to do a little truncated version of The Flood. And they have a new guest composer that sits with Stephen Schwartz at the back of the room and then comments on the writing. And I was like, oh my God, Stephen Schwartz is going to be there. And I wonder who the guest will be. Of all the composers in the musical theater, it was Stephen Sondheim. And I was like, oh my God, Stephen Schwartz and Stephen Sondheim are standing in the back of the room. And we did the thing and I ate my cookies and drank my punch and I sang the songs and off we went. No one talked about the actors. It was about the writers. And then a few weeks later, I get a phone call from my agent at the time. They said, Gavin, we have a really crazy offer for you. And I was like, an offer? And I hadn't, I hadn't done a Broadway show. I hadn't been on Broadway yet. And I was like, how do I have an offer? Don't I have to audition? They said, no, it's for this new musical called Wicked. And it's Stephen Schwartz wrote it. And apparently he saw you in this thing you did and loved you. And he wants you to come in. And I was like, Stephen Schwartz knows my name. <laughs> I was like, holy crap. Then I went and did the workshops of Wicked. I got asked to go to LA and do another workshop. And I got to know Mark Platt better. And then I got to talk to Mark Platt about that conversation. And then I was like leaving my agency because I wasn't happy at my agency. And he got me interviews after I left my agency with some agents. And and now I'm represented by my agent that I've been with since 2002. And that was all because I looked at that piece of paper on the table and just went and auditioned. It's just so important. Just, just do the work in the beginning. You know, that's, that'd be my biggest piece of advice. It's just work begets work. Just go and do it. There's this great saying in the artist's way where she says, Lord, I will take care of the quantity. You take care of the quality. 
and it just releases the expectation of everything you have to do has to be good. Just make it. Sit down at the piano mm. and write the song. Sit down and write the play. Get the scene for the TV audition and just read it a bunch of times. Just make a bunch of takes for the self-tape. Just go to a bunch of auditions. Take care of the quantity. Just do the work. And maybe some quality will come along, which is what has been my experience. I've been really, really fortunate that I've had some really beautiful quality along the way. Well, and I and so many people can attest to that because whenever I've seen you, the quality is there. Thank you. You're a, an exceptional performer, actor, singer, all the things. And I love that story. I just love that story because we hear so many little things like that on the podcast of like crazy ways that things happened for people. And I just love that it's not always waking up at five in the morning to get in that, you know, open call line. There are just so many ways to get to that is where part you want to be and to curate. That is part of the work right there. That is part of that. But, but be, be adventurous, be curious to see the different ways. Because like you said, there isn't just one path and it, it doesn't, it's, if I don't get called back for that callback, then it's over. Or, I, or honestly, if I'm not on Broadway, it's over. No offense to Broadway, but Broadway's not all that. Some of the best work I've ever done, I've done in rooms where no one's been in it. You know, it's, it's just been me faffing about in a room with a couple people and some ideas and us getting done with a moment and going, that was pure magic. What just happened was pure magic. Now, can we try to rediscover this in front of an audience? Let's see if we can rediscover it again. We're not trying to recreate it. We're just trying to refine those moments. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't always happen. Oftentimes doesn't happen on Broadway. To expect it to happen there, that's where I just sort of am trying to not get frustrated with if stuff is crap or I see something that I don't think is good. It's like, that's eh, fine. Something else will come along that will inspire me. Or something will come from within that will inspire me. And I'll be like, I think I want to say this. And then hopefully I can make magic with it. And then hopefully somebody wants to see it. And if they don't, screw the expectation of that and just keep going and make something else. Just quantity. Just make just make it. Make it. Well, you have come along and inspired me. So I appreciate that and your words and, and everything today. I'm so happy that we got to chat again. My pleasure. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Robert. Thank you. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Instagram and Facebook at The Breakdown with Robbie. We also have some pretty exciting supplementary content over there like Instagram live catch-ups with some of your favorite podcast guests. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and write a quick review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And don't forget to check out TSMA Consulting. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, thanks for listening and get ready for another episode of The Breakdown. Hey listeners, you've heard on the podcast from casting directors and Broadway directors just how vital a well-curated social media presence can be for your career. 
The Breakdown is proud to be partnering with TSMA Consulting, a globally recognized social media firm that can help you authentically grow your following without using bots, fake followers, or anything like that. I particularly love the welcome packet and the videos they include that help you optimize your account. And wow, did I learn a lot. The TSMA is offering an exclusive discount for our listeners. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com.